Happy New Year, everybody, and welcome to DevOps Decrypted. This is episode seven, Value Streams and Vulnerabilities. I'm your host, Romy Greenfield, and joining me today, I have Jobin and Matt. Say hi, guys. Hello, hello. Happy New Year. (laughs) Happy Happy New Year. Year. Happy New, happy third, 2020. (laughs) Yay, again. Yay. (laughs) I can't contain my excitement. (laughs) (laughs) Locked up in the room, yeah. (laughs) Um, Cool. So today we've got an exciting topic for you. Um, We're going to talk about the Log4J vulnerability that took over the internet for a good while and made so many good memes. Uh, (laughs) I think there is actually a site with lots of memes all related to the Log4J vulnerability. If you haven't seen it, please go. It's great. I wonder if the meme sites are like vulnerable to the Log4J exploit. No, sorry, I'm getting way too meta. It's way too early (laughs) in the year, way too early in the podcast for those sort of thoughts. Um, Do you guys think there is still cause for concern over the Log4J vulnerability? Do you think people have got over it now? <laughs> Patched everything that they possibly can? I don't know if I'll call the whole thing exciting or not, because it came yeah. at the very, very wrong time, right? Mm. Just before the stroke of holidays, I believe. Yeah, Log4J waits for no one. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Timing was terrible, yeah. When you're, you're mobilizing people to go off and fix things. Um, but yeah, that's the way it goes sometimes. Um, you know, these things don't happen um, in ideal cadence. Um, we used to talk about things like, we're going to do a code freeze over Christmas and New Year, because that's the way that we did things in you know, pr- prior to DevOps um, happening and people were getting comfortable with 10 releases a day. Um, yeah. And I think you know, anyone in that position where you have something drop like that, where you know, people have gone off on holiday um, and they're standing down, getting ready for Christmas or whatever celebrations you're having over that that time. Um, and yeah, you're not allowed to touch the systems. And yet, wait a minute, what's this? Um, yeah, a horrible, um, horrible exploit, um, which just kind of got worse the the more you looked at it. Um, so to come back to your question, Romy, should we still be scared of it? Um, uh, yeah. So. Um, so I love security and I really hate security um, because um, finding out about things like, oh, you've been hacked is a really, mm-hmm. it's going to be a really bad day for someone. Um, yeah. Finding out that there's something going on that could be just kind of dormant. Um, it's still there. Um, or maybe you don't even know it's there. Uh, you haven't fixed it. You don't realize you need to fix it. That's horrible. That's scary. This should be a Halloween episode, really, shouldn't it? It really should. It's it's you're just doing the classic script of a horror movie right now. You don't know it's there. You don't know what damage it's doing. Exactly. <laughs> you don't even know you have a problem. <laughs> For on, this particular one, the vulnerability that we are talking about, that one is address, right? I mean, the newer versions of Log4, it resolves that problem. So as <laughs> long as you upgraded your application to include the new versions of Log4, everything is good and back to normal. And, you know, we're going back to the holidays. But you're right. I mean, we don't know what else is there, right? I mean, there could be other vulnerabilities hidden somewhere in our code system. You know, the biggest problem that we have seen over the last few years is we started using third-party softwares, right? Whether it is Log4j or something else, you know, 
that there's all I mean I was wondering I mean do you know any Java application that doesn't use log4j uh, very, very unlikely <laughs> so everybody is using it and you don't know what else is in there maybe tomorrow something new comes in and that fear is always going to be there right yeah and so just to expand on what what I mean you know you, you're absolutely right that there's gonna be another one um, I'm still scared that we haven't found all of the places where this thing is because mm -hmm. it's um it's uh, it's a library that's just so um so so widely used um I was doing a bit of research um in 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 classic Matt Saunders style doing some research 10 minutes before the podcast recording was going to go ahead um and I suddenly realized oh my god I've got a Minecraft server that I run for my kids um and that's going to have log for j in it um and you know it's not just that you know if you're in, in a devops environment you're thinking about all the software that you run oh yeah you might be running something on the side for you for your for your family to enjoy and you need to um make sure that's patched um but just the the thought that's a vulnerability of this scale um and you know, you know fairly unprecedented stuff where you can do remote execution from something that seems to be benign, like a logging uh, engine, um, yeah. is maybe unprecedented. Um, and, and it's that aspect that really scares me, let alone the stuff that Jobin's been talking about, which is like, what's the next one going to be? How widespread is that going to be that we can't actually really imagine what it would be like? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, um, you know, I'm going to put this back on October the 31st because it's, um, it's, it's scary. Go on, Jamie. Yeah, I I think it also talks about the importance of DevOps, doesn't it? Because if if you are a company who has got your uh, DevOps process figured out, it would have been much much easier for you to you know quickly fix this one and roll it out into production, right? Uh, you have your CA, you have your CD, uh, you know appropriate branching strategies, so you make sure your cutter branch fits the lock for the version, you know. Uh, push it into master and then you know uh, push it into production and whatever whatever your devops process is if you had it figured out it would have been much much easier for you to fix it into production remember those days when we had to you know wait for maybe a week maybe six weeks before you can get the approval to push something into production what happens then you find a vulnerability but you still cannot push it into production because mm -hmm. it takes so long uh, for the delivery cycle and you know the vulnerability is there that's scarier isn't it yeah yeah um yeah. for all yeah it's, it's massively scary um and i'm yeah i'm relieved that if you look at contemporary implementations of um ci build systems um, they're doing things like analyzing um, or they can do things like analyzing that whole third-party supply chain that you mentioned a few a couple of minutes ago Jobin, um, and, and knowing that if you're using this so-and-so dependency, then that's using something else's dependency, which is using something else's dependency, and underneath it somewhere, there's a log4j. Um, yeah. and, and highlighting that um, maybe either the version of log4j that uh, you've pinned um, in your system is too old and is vulnerable, or um, some third-party library further up the stack or further down the turtles, uh, the, the Pratchett-minded of us, um, is is also vulnerable um and uh, and yeah so seeing the work that's been done i would say relatively recently so the last two or three years around um understanding that um open source software and open source libraries are great and um fundamentally underpinning uh all this stuff that we run um and 
let that be the overriding um, thing here because I don't want anyone to think that I'm bashing open source software because it's one of the greatest creations in the entire universe. Um, but the fact that the sheer prof um, um, profligacy of it and the amount of it there is out there and the amount of uh, abstractions that are being used means that you can't possibly know everything thing that you're running. Yeah, it is even worse in the world of containerization, right? Because right. earlier you had to worry about only the individual pieces of software that you're pulling in. Now you're using it, starting from a base image. You don't even really know what what exactly mm -hmm. is in the base image, right? Uh, it's okay if you're starting from the base image of Linux, but if you're starting from the base image somebody else created for you, there could be other software in it, which we don't even know about, right? And if there's a vulnerability in, in it, and if, even if it is advertised, Probably you don't know that you are using it. <laughs> so. Yeah, and I guess if there's an image that's really popular, you kind of put your trust in the fact that so many other people have trusted it. Exactly. But how many of those people have actually dug into what is in it and have mm -hmm. actually checked? I think I, that, no, that I haven't. <laughs> same thing, right? I mean, nobody does it, but that mm -hmm. makes the vulnerability scanning, again, more and more important in, in today's mm -hmm. world, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think it's great that... Um, that containerization has always had this kind of all oh, yeah, but you don't really know what's going in your image. It's great. You can pull down hub.docker.com slash um, uh, JBoss or whatever. Sorry, I'm sounding like someone from three decades ago. Um, you can pull down something, um, what's in it. Um, and so, so that would, it would be even more terrifying if there hadn't then been a subset of the industry which is now innovating in that area. People like Sneak and Anchor, uh, those sort of people who are putting together systems that um, basically they built business cases around or business models around the fact that people don't know what's going into their images. Um, yeah. We've seen the uptake of container technology in general slow down because of this sort of stuff. And now there's a mitigation for it. Um, and finally, those those birds are coming home to roost. It's brilliant. Um, those, that, that tech is now is now saving our skins. Um, because we yeah. are getting more abstracted, things are, are getting you know it's not it's not simple. Software is is fiendishly complicated, um, um, and with massive amounts of dependencies. Um, and yeah, we're now in a position where we absolutely need these tools to find these yeah. sort of things. And this is the payoff for them when something like this hits. Yeah, but if you ask, I mean, can we completely stop it? Probably not. But can we identify it and probably fix it sooner? We can, right? Absolutely. Yeah, and I guess it's preparing yourself to be able to update things easily. You know, not Excellent. having not fit, not having things so hard coded that if you try and update one dependency, every it's going to take you months and everything's going to fall over. Um, is there anything else that you guys think people could put in place if something similar to this happened again to make their lives easier and protect themselves for the future? That's a great question, Romy. And I, I'd say there's there's a psychological aspect here, or even like an organizational typography um, aspect here. Um, mm. Not typography, type, uh, that's fonts. Um, an organizational um, responsibility here um, where uh, you can run your organization in a way where you put controls in, and you put tests in so that you don't have phoning tests or you don't have um, software release with vulnerabilities. Um, is that a realistic expectation? I think it's a good opportunity for organizations to look and see, um, um, basically debunk that 
Um, you, you can go a certain a certain degree. Uh, you can go you can go a certain way um, along the road of 100% no vulnerabilities, um, but you, you can't get there. Um, do you stop at when you're at 99% known vulnerabilities? Because there's all the ones that you don't know about, of course. Uh, you know, the things that keep me awake at night. Um, and furthermore, um, do you go to the extent of saying, well, yeah, we're probably going to actually end up releasing software with vulnerabilities in it. We'd better damn well be in a position so that when we find those vulnerabilities, we can fix them quickly, as you say, Jovin. And further, um, we're not going to be hacked. People, you're probably going to get hacked at some point if you're running any sort of system that's um, in any sort of widespread use and attracts attention, mm-hmm. especially if there's money concerned. Uh, yeah. Can you put in everything you need to mitigate that actually happening? God forbid that it does. Um, and, and yeah, and, and adjust the lens a little bit just to make sure that you're not setting yourselves unsettable expectations or worse, putting in some system that you think is going to protect you from all of this sort of stuff. And um, even with the best will in the world, it doesn't quite do it for you because yeah. something new and unprecedented happens like the log for j thing. Yeah. And I suppose if you put all your eggs in one basket and that doesn't work, then you've got one single point of failure. So maybe protecting yourself by putting various different systems that might pick up on something in place. Yeah. Yeah. You have multiple, multiple um, gates, uh, multiple things doing the same sort of thing. So you're not, you don't have single points of failure, Um, but much more importantly, and with my classic DevOps hat on the ability to react quickly, uh, the ability to fix it fast um, without, um, uh, without politics, without um, dogma, um, and you know, just you know, eyes on the prize. Get get the new release out, patch the thing, um, yes. destroy the servers that might have been hacked or that you're worried about, recreate them. All those good old DevOps practices come come back, um, and and start to um, start to help you win again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I like the message: be prepared to be hacked. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, come on, bring it on. (laughs) It's a scary world we live in. (laughs) It is, it is. Yeah, we can talk about the one thing DevOps engineers aren't doing today that they probably should be. Um, Getting rid of uh, any log4j vulnerabilities, that's one thing they should be doing. (laughs) Oh, no, now now the DevOps have been painted as as the janitors of the system. This is no good. Um, (laughs) um, Yeah, so once... Once you finish being busy upgrading every single log for J, um, mm-hmm. you've got on every single dependency, <laughs> then it's time to rest. It was the seventh day. No, um, in <laughs> in seriousness, um, yeah, I thought about this for a while um, when we proposed this as a topic a couple of weeks ago. Um, what's the one thing? Um, and I would say the one thing DevOps engineers could do better um, is. Um, well, actually, I'm going to pick apart DevOps engineer first um, mm-hmm. because that's that's a term that uh, that I don't much like. I think it's um, it causes it causes a load of problems um, while solving a load. But let's put that aside. That's another topic for a future podcast. Um, let's just say people working in DevOps, people who are doing DevOpsy type things. Um, and the one thing I would say, uh, I would go heavily cultural with this, is um, that thing that you're doing. Um, 
Who are you doing it for? Why are you doing it? Pick up the phone. Go and speak to the person you're doing it for. Talk to them. Is it working for them? Does it actually make sense? Could we make it better? Um, if it's something you're doing over and over again, um, could we write a system to do it? Do we lose a load of stuff, uh, a load of um, nuance by putting it in a system, or does it really need you to do it for them? Speak to them. Like, work out, are you actually um, helping them to deliver their best work? Um, or is what you're doing actually just um, a waste of time? Um, it probably isn't, probably doing it for a very valid reason. Um, and maybe you have a chat um, and you speak to the person who you know, you, you're communicating with every now and again um, and um, everyone's happy, in which case, well, you can just pass the time and talk about the counties of England or something like that. <laughs> but isn't that value stream management, right? Uh, isn't that what we call value stream management, Matt? So basically what you want yeah. to do is, you know, understand where the value is and reduce the waste and... Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and maybe there's an implication that, um, oh, you're not, doing, you, you're not doing that. You're not working out where the waste is and you know, where the value is. Um, I find myself accidentally autopiloting through many, many situations where you're doing something, you've done it before, um, you're doing it again for somebody, it looks kind of the same. Um, yeah, maybe it's setting up some infrastructure. Maybe it's setting up some a VPC and some subnets. Um, maybe it's provisioning an application onto a Kubernetes cluster. Um, especially that stuff you do over and over again. Um, it's like, yeah, you're looking like you're adding the value in the same way every single time. When I was listening to um, uh, the Ideal Cast um, over the the, the weekend um, podcast from Gene Kim, and he was talking to um, to to John Willis. Um, so basically, two two massive heavy hitters in the DevOps world, people who um, we just look up to as being like the gods of this industry, um, and they're talking about the differences between. Um, Physical manufacturing, so the likes of um, Toyota building cars um, and uh, the value stream that's delivered there and the difference between that and the knowledge work that we do. Um, so we're delivering software, we're delivering solutions for people um, and, and adding value in ways that kind of change a lot faster and a lot more readily than the old physical world. Um, you know, Toyota changed their processes because... Uh, this is a massive trivialization. The move over from doing petrol to electric cars, you know, big change, obviously. Um, we're making changes like that all of the time because we're using software and there's much shorter lead times to changing things. And so the, the long and the short of that is that um, the way that we do things gets out of date very, very quickly, just as soon as you've established a process. Um, and so, mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I find myself doing something for the seventh or eighth time maybe um, you know not obvious stuff that i could have automated but maybe a maybe a process that's partly technical and partly um process driven um and then going well hang on actually yeah is this actually right is this still the best we can do um and so there there you go that's why that's my one thing i think devops engineers can um can do and it's not a technical thing okay i can probably go with a technical thing then right uh, I, I think a lot of the times uh, what I've seen is, you know, you take your pipeline, there are different stages within your pipeline. 
there is one simple thing that you can do somewhere in one of the stages which could drastically reduce the time the pipeline actually takes to build right you probably wouldn't even think uh, or oh, this is such a small change it it reduced my you know time from maybe 8 minutes to 2 minutes right i have seen this happening so many times it could be it could be very many different things i mean i'll give you a very simple example uh take cloning for example right you have this massive git repository which has got you know years of history behind it um so somebody comes in a devops engineer comes in you know pulls the code down starts building on it and deploys uh, creates the artifact and deploys it that's all great uh, but that cloning alone probably takes you know three minutes because the repository is so huge and maybe it is pulling from europe somewhere and you are sitting in north america or in india right and it could be taking eight minutes instead of three minutes uh, that's all great uh but just by changing that cloning process to do a shallow clone instead of cloning the entire repository that could bring down the time for the actual clone to maybe a minute or less right so small improvements uh like that could potentially bring down the the actual build time from 8 minutes to 2 minutes think about the build time over the period of time over a week over a month you're bringing build times from you know 3000 hours back to you know 300 hours that could be huge huge right it doesn't have to be about git cloning it could be anything else maybe pulling down a docker image from the internet versus pulling pulling it down from your local repository right that could save a lot of time so th- there are those small improvements that you can make within your pipeline which could potentially save you hours over the period of time that's massively valid yeah and mm. and there's another aspect to it um which again came from that audio cast i was listening to um over the weekend um where i think it was actually patrick dubois was talking about um again another godfather of of devops talking about how um in the context of flow um having something you have to do that you have to wait for that takes more than a couple of minutes um doesn't just waste some of your time um but as human beings um if something's going to take more than a couple of minutes you're going to go off and do something else mm-hmm. i mean not necessarily go off and make a cup of tea or take the dog for a walk um but you're 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 out tab you'll flick to something else you'll go to another window uh, you know browse the news or 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 catch up on slack or whatever um and what you don't realize is the 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 hor- horrific effect that actually has on your productivity because um maybe you forget that you'd set this git clone off and you come back mm. to it and even if you haven't forgotten you've just context switched half of um what you were doing out of your brain um and it's evil i i believe it's kind of evil to to say well you know you should just sit there waiting for it um that doesn't make for happy developers um no. and so the reality is yes when you add up all those 2 minutes i multiply by 100 builds over 7 developers you save a big number my maths is not yeah. my strong point um <laughs> but there's also that that thing about flow and just being able to do a task and concentrate on it and focus on it and have things happen and get your feedback loops in a reasonable amount of time um is is absolutely unquantifiable it's an unquantifiable benefit it's huge yeah reminds me of all the coffee breaks that we used to take when maven is downloading the world right you give maven clean <laughs> install and it's downloading all those dependencies into your local repository that's that's going to take forever in the first time that's when you go for a coffee right yeah exactly and and you look at um a, a lot of the um the advancements that we've made that just look trivial 
um, things like going from virtual machines to doing things like running Solaris zones 20 years ago, where yeah, you don't have to wait 15 minutes for a virtual machine to start to run something new on. You can just get it, boom, there it is within two seconds. Um, uh, and, and again, when you move up into containers, um, having these things instantly start up, having caches so you don't have to wait for Maven to download the entire internet. Um, again, it just looks like us tweaking things and saying, oh, we can make this really, really fast. Isn't that great? Um, but yeah, the effect of all those things cumulatively um, yeah. is, you know, cannot be understated. Excellent. So you guys mentioned value stream management in things DevOps related people could be doing that they aren't doing. So that brings us nicely onto the fact that we've released an ebook about value stream management. Woo! Uh, so who would this ebook? be good for who should be going and getting this ebook and having a good read value stream management it's a loaded term but it is something that you could be doing today every day right mm -hmm. maybe not at the company level maybe in your team level it's all about finding where the value lies and where the base is and you know find, uh, spending all your energy in finding that value right Matt? yeah mm -hmm. i mean it's a bit of a um a bit of a cliche um to say like who should be looking at it? Well, everyone. Um, but in this case, um, I think it's it, it's warranted. Um, I would encourage anyone who's looking at what they do um, in a business, be it developers, operations people, networks, um, products, um, services people, uh, marketing, etc. You'd be looking at um, what you think your job is. Um, and... Oftentimes, you'll find, um, uh, and I don't mean this derogatorily, you'll, you'll find a, a relatively narrow definition that we come up with where, for example, um, developers' job is to write some code um, that becomes a compiled thing um, that someone runs somewhere um, and take a step back from it and look at what the actual value is. Um, so the value you, you're delivering as a developer um, is, is a little bit masked. Um, ultimately, you're, what you are doing um, is part of a chain of things um, that result in some value being delivered to someone, um, whether that's an end-user customer, whether that's um, um, an internal person. You know, perhaps you're writing a tool um, that uh, lets you do holiday requests or something like that. So you know, it doesn't have to be necessarily an external thing. Um, and again, there's, there's something in it for everyone. Um, I like it particularly, value stream mapping, value stream management, um, because I believe it goes it goes hand in glove with DevOps, um, where um, if you look at the more kind of traditional definitions of DevOps, it's looking at how do you get those feedback loops going? How do you look at how things are flowing through your system? As, and systems thinking being a bigger thing than just your little bit of your world that you're, you're dealing with in a, in a maybe in a large organization. Um, and it's as simple as that, really. Um, just projecting yourself slightly outside of, um, not necessarily outside of your comfort zone, but it might be a little bit uncomfortable, um, but outside of the world that you're working um, to look at the, a bigger picture. Um, and so that's why I think everyone should be interested in it. And it is also interesting when you start doing value stream management, you will realize that, some of the minor adjustments that we make can can increase value drastically, or you know, 
everybody who is a developer has done this. I mean, there are small features that you spend hours and hours developing. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the end, it is only just offering very little value to the customer. But then there are some features which is like maybe an hour job, 10 minutes job, a small improvement that may, that you can make on the user interface, which then potentially improves the user experience quite, by, by a huge mile, right? So those kind of small improvements, if it increases the value by much, you should be doing that today, right? I think that's why value stream management is important because when teams get together and figure out where the value lies and what are the kind of things we should be prioritizing, uh, that improves the experience of the customer drastically. Yeah, we're back to those small improvements again. Um, it's massive. Yeah. And um, and I think the key thing for me is um, understanding the context around um, which things to make the small improvement on. Um, it's, it's huge um, because yeah, once you take a, a step backwards and you and you put a lens on um, all of the things that you're running um, and working out um, which ones are, are used regularly, which ones aren't, um, which ones are you know really being used by by customers and where you can make their lives better, um, um, you know, without just saying oh, we'll just make everything better for the customer, um, you know, putting some science behind that, um, measuring things properly. Um, it, it can be really, really enlightening and motivating as well. Um, you know, I've been stuck in jobs in the past um, where uh, I, I'm doing I'm, I'm doing some work, um, and it seems like again it's a very well-defined process. Um, I know why I'm doing it, but only within the lens of of, of my own little world. Um, and and so, yeah, I think it's it's a critical thing um, to have. Um, management buy-in from this um where you're encouraging people to look outside of their own little their own little bits and pieces so you can see that well yeah you can make an improvement over here um but what actual real world value does it actually deliver does it actually yeah. uh, benefit someone um to a measurable degree further down the line or not um mm-hmm. and that's a and good yeah. point so on that token uh, would you say that every company should be starting their digital transformation journey by doing a value stream ma- mapping exercise and figure out uh, where the value is yeah yeah because um at the end of the day um i think if, if you're looking at transformation um mm-hmm. it, it needs to go back to the first principles um mm-hmm. we, we talk about why do people do transformations and, and we say things like well it's to make sure that your netflix are not blockbuster um, and, and those are things that aren't really technical. Um, they're about running businesses and, and working out what you're selling to people. How do you sell things to people um, that they want to buy um, that are software um, and continually improve them, make those customers happy, sell to more customers, um, make sure they don't churn, make sure they renew. Um, those are not technical things. Um, mm. And yet we put in all this technology sometimes without um, well sometimes losing sight of that um and yeah. the vsm great technique for joining it all together can can i also use this time to shamelessly plug that you know adaptive does do value stream management exercises with our customers shamelessly yes, plug it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's a very interesting topic very dear to my heart yeah, because Sorry, we, we also do something called a DevOps maturity assessment where we go to the customers and see 
assess the current maturity of the organization in terms of devops processes and you know it, it, touching all the three uh, golden tiers uh, the people the processes and the tools but it will be very nice to uh, to a value stream mapping exercise alongside it so you could actually see where where the value is and how you can adjust your entire processes to you know bring that value out instead of you know uh, spending all your time and energy and focus on uh, producing some waste right yeah come along yeah adaptors can help you with that um <laughs> but we don't have to um one of the most intriguing <laughs> yeah one of the most intriguing things i saw about value stream mapping was um so um i'm not sure if we mentioned this on this podcast but there's another podcast called team titans that ryan spilkin does uh, for adaptivists and we talked to steve Pereira, who is the um uh he, he labels himself the value stream guy um he works a lot in that area um, um and um well, dedicating his life to it it's got a book coming out um, on it and everything um and one of the the things that that he says um which i found was absolutely profound was that um if you just get started on value stream mapping um you just start measuring things like how long does it take something to happen uh, and by something i mean delivering some value so not just how long does the process take to run on a box um <clears throat> just start measuring that um most companies find that it improves just because you started measuring it and you made people aware that this is the thing. Um, and then when you really want to improve it, then you go and find Jobin. <laughs> <laughs> Not a bad idea. But going back to the ebook, uh, obviously it touches on a lot of the points that we discussed today, right? It mm -hmm. talks about you know defining value in, in, in your DevOps pipeline. It, it tells why value stream management is so important. Uh, the benefits of doing a value stream management, uh, how we can unlock more value by hiring adaptives and so on and so forth. So great ebook, right? Absolutely. Yeah, we both contributed to it, so we're not biased at all. <laughs> I'm <laughs> not taking all the credit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can share it 50-50. <laughs> Um, and I think you can download it from our website as well. I think it's available now for free. So please go and download it if anyone is interested. There's lots of tools available that can help you with value stream management. Um, and we are partnered with uh, one company called Plandeck. Um, and we've been lucky enough to have an interview with the COO, uh, Will Lytle, on value stream management. So here it is. Okay, so today we are joined by Will Lytle, who is the COO, almost said CEO there, uh, COO of Plandeck. So let's find out a little bit more about Plandeck. So what is Plandeck? Uh, well, it's a pleasure to, to be here. Thanks for having me along. Um, so Plandeck is a... Um, a SaaS analytics platform, which looks across a variety of different tools that engineering teams use, product teams use to deliver software. And so some people I think can best equate it with almost like a Google analytics for software delivery. Uh, we hook into the workflow tools such as Jira and Azure. We look at repositories and we look in your um, pipeline CICD tools to be able to do kind of two things. One is to provide a central place where, you know, organizations from the C-suite all the way down to the team level, and particularly focused on the team level, can really understand and interrogate what their end-to-end -end delivery process looks like from ideation all the way through to deployment to production. Um, and the other element is that we're constantly challenging ourselves with here at Plandeck is how do we 
cross-reference data from these different tools to further enhance the value that the insights can provide the teams and the organizations that use Plan Deck, right? So for ex example, being able to follow tickets all the way through a system like Jira, and even if it's closed, you can continue to track the life cycle of that ticket as it moves through different testing processes, repositories, and pipelines and eventually deployed into production. So really finding useful ways of, of bringing that data together, cross-referencing it, and finding new unique ways for, for teams to, to, to drill into their delivery process in ways that, that historically they haven't been able to, or at least it's required a tremendous amount of Excel work. <laughs> so where did the idea come from? Uh, how did you kind of join the company and yeah so so Plandeck Plandeck started its infancy it was actually born out of a software delivery company and okay. like many of our clients you know the the, the company that, that preceded Plandeck had some questions around how are we delivering software are we any good at this what are we bad at where can we improve and so on and, and back then they were using as many teams were back in the day excel spreadsheets right downloading csv files from Jira and pulling a bunch of data together and, and trying to see what they can learn from it and thinking, okay, well, there's got to be a place for a product that does all of this for you. Um, and so that was the kind of infancy of Plan Deck, and it's grown over a couple of major iterations over the last couple of years. Um, we have a, a number of clients globally that use it in a number of different sectors. Um, but yeah, it was it was really born out of the idea that it's trying to solve and, and still to this day is kind of, you know, from a product strategy and, and engineering perspective developed by the same people who were you know, dying to have a tool like this in the first place. So there's a, a real, a real strong feedback loop, not only from our clients, but also from our actual engineers in terms of how they use it, the value they get out of it, what they put back into the tool for our clients. Take that password yeah, that, there. Sorry, go on, Joe. Go on. No, that, that's great. I mean, I can, I can instantly see the value in there, Will, uh, because, you know, DevOps probably is not the fancy word in town uh, anymore, uh, but value stream management is. And, you know, uh, when Matt, when we were talking about uh, the trends for 2022, VSM has a great place in there, uh, probably up there on the uh, list. Um, so I can see how Plandeck is probably helping companies, you know, adopt VSM because one of the challenges had been, you know, you can't really see what is happening across all of your entire toolset. And um, I can see how Plandeck is helping with that. Is that really your USP or are you trying to achieve something more than that? Or is that the main thing? Our strategy is, is a small business, you know, over the years has always been really focused very deep in the SDLC process, right? Be able to cover that ideation to production space of value stream management and to really focus our efforts on delivering insights within that space. As we look forward um, as a business, you know, the next couple of years, there are kind of two areas in where we're going to be progressing. Um, one very imminently uh, in a new product that we're launching in the next couple of months is going to be taking all of that data that's coming from the system on a real-time basis and almost flipping things on its head. So rather than people coming to Plandeck, looking through a variety of different charting technologies and seeing kind of how are we trending in this area and this area, it actually is going to be a proactive stream of, listen, in this particular sprint, here's what you're working on. Here's what anomalies are happening in the data. You know, it's born from a basic fact that our customers are busy, right? The team leads, scrum masters, the teams are very busy. They don't have the luxury sometimes of taking a step back and really kind of putting the intellectual effort into thinking about the data. So we wanted to provide an element of the product that kind of did the thinking for you, right? So you wake up in the morning, you have a cup of tea or you have a cup of coffee and you say, okay, plan deck, what do I need to worry about today? What's going wrong, right? And it surfaces things that for instance, you know, this pull request hasn't been sorted yet or this story has a disproportionate amount of lines changed for a normal eight point story. So to start to flag either risks or specific alerts 
in what the team is working on that's going to help you meet that end goal, whether it's a sprint or an epic or something of that nature. It's kind of taking all of that data that we're pulling through together and doing a lot more proactive analysis so that we can help teams navigate some of the delivery challenges that they have and really find the answers in a much faster, effective way. Um, the second area that the product is going to develop, I think, over the next couple of years, and you'll see this, you know, quite predominantly, is extending broadly, more broadly, out across value stream management. Right. So there's mm -hmm. a lot of great tools in the market today that are doing more business strategy and portfolio alignment, which we'd like to bring in and, and include in that conversation. Um, there's obviously the IT operations side of things and cybersecurity side of things, which we'll have something to say about in, in the upcoming months. Uh, and then lastly, you know, the, the big question is, what about value realization? You know, what is all of this actually generating in terms of improved NPS scoring or the results on revenues or so on and so forth? So, you know, we're not necessarily there to be a massive data lake of all information across your business. That's not the market we're trying to target. I think for us, it's still, you know, our DNA is still about engineering delivery within the context of value stream management. But what we want to be able to do is to be able to tie the strategy with the realization a little bit more tightly in that particular context so that people can kind of see some of the tight correlations that uh, that we know exist in the data, but just aren't always able to flush out. You know, we know that, for instance, you know, looking at the data, there is a tight correlation between cycle time and NPS scoring. We know that there's correlation between NPS scoring and revenues, right? So to be able to bring that picture together in a much more direct way, um, I think, you know, increases the value that that plan that can offer to our clients' organizations. Yeah, I, I just want to clarify one more thing. Um, so yeah. when you say, you, you know, definitely in the morning coming with a cup of coffee, coffee I want to see what is going wrong and uh, where I need to pay my attention. That's really great. Obviously, that brings a lot of value to the engineering teams. But I just want to clarify that it also tells me over the span of six months or one year, uh, this is what your cycle time is. This is what an average of your cycle time is. Plandek does that too, right? Oh, 100%. I mean, that, that is what Plandek is today, first and foremost. It is, you know, a historical trending tool that helps you analyze, you know, exactly how well you've been delivering over a period of time, what improvements you've made, where things have dropped off, why that's happened, what you can do to action change about that. Um, we just want to turn a little bit, we just want to turn that on its head a little bit and have Plandek also be able to offer you more of a forward-looking risk management element to as well. You know, where are the risks that we need to be aware of and concerned about? What can we best spend our, our time doing this morning? You know, that I think will have a, a big role to play in stand-ups, right? If you can give people a couple of meaningful things to bring into a stand-up, say, okay, where is this, where is this, where is this? You can already see, you know, how that's going to be transformational for a lot of teams. Awesome. Yeah, I can see how um how yeah, the thing about not wanting to be like the massive data lake is a benefit because I guess it's it's not easy, but um, relatively straightforward to collect a whole load of data out of these tools. Um, but the big thing is, is like, is taking the, um, finding out the bits that are actually important. And I guess once you've got a number of people using this, you can start to see those trends, right? And um, and see you know, what, what are the two or three things that are really good data-driven indicators of, of success. Would that be kind of true, yeah? Yeah, it is true. And I think, you know, with the data lake concept in, in the BI area, I mean, those are particularly well-serviced areas of the market. Um, I'm not going to plan any, uh, uh, plug any brands on this, on this podcast, but we all know the big players in the BI space out there and they're particularly, you know, they do. And so we're not necessarily interested strategically in going to that space. Again, our DNA is particularly with engineers. And so we want to help them understand how those trends are looking, what they can do about it. And then also start to bring a little bit more referenceability across 
our client base as well, so that people can get a good indication, you know, as and where appropriate of kind of how do they compare to similar teams working on similar, similar technology stacks with similar constraints when it comes to things like your deployment frequency and your lead time and your cycle time, you know, how, how do we sit against our, our competitors? How do we sit against the market? Um, yeah. Right. Are there any particular constraints that, uh, that come up frequently? Um, I, well, I don't know if you're allowed to talk about um, yeah, yeah, yeah. that, um, mm-hmm. the, you know, constraints that people maybe artificially put on themselves or, or have put foisted upon them um, that cause particular problems um, that plan that highlights. Um, are you talking like from a, from a metrics perspective or generally just yeah. going in? Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, funny. So I think the first, the first phase of most of our customer engagements is getting to know your own data and getting to know what you can learn about your own data. Um, which is kind of a cheeky answer to that question, but I'll, I'll elaborate a little bit more in the sense that, you know, clients have a pretty clear view for the most part of the sort of the headline metrics that they want. We want to be able to measure our lead time. We want to know how long it takes from scoted idea to production. And that's, you know, it's, it's no surprise. It's a kind of a well-known, probably the most well-known um, indicator in, in agile delivery. The first phase that they learn, it's not necessarily a constraint, um, but they learn a lot about how they deliver software and whether or not the way that they deliver software enables them to get the most robust view of that. And, and the easiest comparison I have that in some ways is, you know, we've seen some clients where the data is quite simplified and therefore the first insights that they get are quite limited simply because they've got very streamlined workflows. And so they start to then build a case in their own minds where, you know, we don't want to add more statuses for the sake of adding statuses, but hey, if we added a couple more things, that would derive, that would help us understand a little bit more how do we connect and how do we collaborate between development and the QA process or to how do we hand over from a design into a, a you know, development process? So connecting some of those dots, so they're not necessarily constraints that they put themselves under, but I think a lot of teams are, you know, a lot of clients that we work with are just starting to really think about data and as such that are starting to think about data points and all of the, you know, your workflow, the events in your, your JIRA and your Azure, all of this, those represent data points, events that in the day that you never think about like that. So in some ways it allows them to kind of start to think about how they work in a way that enables them to get better feedback on it. Um, you know, we see a lot of common constraints just generally from methodology, you know, in terms of, you know, what impact Kanban has on particular statistics, what impact Scrum has on particular statistics, you know, why, what trade-offs are what from a data perspective. So for instance, you know, if you're trying to optimize your, your kind of lead time as a Scrum organization, well, we know that Scrum, one of the great benefits of Scrum is that it allows you to time box and structure your delivery in sort of internally and externally communicable bunches, right? Whereas Kanban allows and optimizes the continual flow of work. Um, but of course, you know, part of the Scrum methodology, you've got these kind of starts and stops every roughly two weeks, sometimes three weeks which then adds a little bit of an additional time as things are kind of queuing up between a design and actual development process. So you're making certain sacrifices for that. So they're not necessarily overall constraints, but things that teams are starting to, to be more well aware of and thinking about actually, why do we do Kanban and why do we do sprints and what is the value of doing these things? And then that kind of then starts a conversation, right? Well, how do we measure that? So I think one of the things that we see in a lot of clients is a sort of evolution of understanding of the objectives of their agile delivery. What are we actually trying to accomplish? And what are the, you know, 
to, to borrow to paraphrase OKRs, but what are the key results they're trying to measure? What are the outcomes that they're trying to realize as part of that continual improvement initiative? And that's kind of where Plandex sits, is to help them think through, articulate, and then measure those key results and outcomes. That's awesome, especially when you start to get into um, being able to judge which methodologies are going to work for you, because so often you work in teams who are like, um, um, yeah, working either in a, in a scrum fashion, maybe doing sprints, maybe doing Kanban, and they're like, well, why are you doing it that way? Um, yeah, it seems like the right thing to do. Yeah. Um, and yeah, actually putting some numbers around that, I feel, it feels really, really powerful. That's cool. Yeah. yeah, now you have the data to support the thinking or maybe contradict what you're thinking, right? It, it's it's good. It's, it's, it really forces people to think in a slightly different way about methodology, what's useful, why it's useful, and, and how to measure it. I think maybe to speak to one of the constraint questions you asked, or the one of the things that we see a lot with Scrum teams is just basic execution of the Scrum methodology as it relates to sprints. So basics around planning, starting a sprint, closing a sprint, and the retro, you know, helps. We think PlanDAC helps a lot of the team. The feedback we do get is that PlanDAC helps them to rethink and restructure just the fundamentals about delivering a sprint in order to become more consistent and reliable in terms of what they're delivering as part of their you know, sprint targets, for instance. Um, so will that all, all make sense? And I, I think there's already a good list of top players in the market uh, with whom uh, Plantec integrates very well. Um, if, if there is a uh, product out there that's not yet integrated with Plantec, uh, so how easy it, it is to integrate that? Does it take a long time to integrate it with Plantec or is it fairly easy? It's, it, it's a good question, quite a broad question. Um, the way that we conceive, I mean, I guess if it's if it's... If it's a tool out there that fits with an existing type of data that we're dealing with, so say a new CI CD tool, right? Because we yeah. already have the facility to ingest, process, and present data related to your CI CD processes. So if we're looking at a new tool out there, um, it's 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 a you know, say reasonably short period of time. I feel like I'm going to get calls now from people saying, "Okay, great, you said you could do this in two weeks," but uh, but you know, it, it's 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 reasonably straightforward. Um, in terms of, you know, because the existing um, infrastructure is there in terms of the processing and the metrics. Um, if we're looking into completely new spaces, which as I said, is something that we're doing a lot as part of our, our strategy this year and next, um, obviously the lead time is going to be a little bit different than that because there's a whole different sense, uh, you know, a whole different conversation. It's not so much about the, the, the taxonomy of the tickets and the structure of the API. It's more about actually the insights itself. So what information do you need to see? And then subsequent to that, you know, part of what PlanDeck does, part of the value of PlanDeck is that it really allows teams to customize the views. So we don't just say, here's lead time, here's a chart, good luck, no way you go. You know, we provide yeah, yeah. the fundamental, which you can then build, you can change the issue types, you can you can configure it. There's a lot of things you can do, which is great, but obviously that those BI functionality that presents its own different set of challenges because with every KPI we bring through, we need to think about, okay, let's take this KPI on a journey. What's the first thing you want to ask? And then how would you drill into that? And what would you ask on the back of that? And then all of that starts to feed into to one of the kind of fundamental BI thing. You know, what is the BI experience we need to be able to provide that? Because again, we're not trying to build a big BI tool, but at this certain, to a certain extent, we want our customers, their teams, individuals to be able to feel like they can take something off the shelf and tweak it so that it's you know, relevant to them. You know, even if you standardize all your Jira workflows and all your work item types, guarantee no two teams operate the exact same way. No two teams use a story or a task or a subtask the exact same way, right? Everyone has their slight nuances. And so the, the product has to be able to adopt to it. So 
you know, in terms of the integrating with with brand new data sets, you know, that's probably you know something we have on a roadmap, kind of quarterly releases we do on those. But one with an existing is a bit shorter of time. But you're not going to get a firm date out of me on these because uh, somebody's going to pull this up for six months from now and be like, "But you said it's only." <laughs> <laughs> That's a great answer though, because we, we work with customers all the time and you know, everybody has a different tool they're using for CI series. So it makes sense for us to know how long it's going. I mean, I can see that all the major players are already integrated with Plantex, so I'm not overly concerned about that. But at the same time, you know, I had this question because there's so many players out there in the CI series space or project management. Anyway, thank we, you. Yeah, no, and we take a we take a pretty pre- we think a pretty pragmatic approach. You know, if, if there's a lot of market consolidation in the area, like workflow tools, there's pretty high level consolidation. Jira, Azure control a big part of the market. There's smaller, smaller players in there as well. You know, so we look to rely on direct integrations because that simplifies things, but there's also not a huge competition. Whereas like with circles, um, sorry, uh, CI/CD tools, pipeline tools, there's a plethora of them, right? Between yep. commercial and open source products, there's hundreds of them out there. So, that's where we've built APIs where you can actually push data, which allows us to minimize times which clients can come on the product much faster. So where there's more tools, we have a tendency to, to have a push um, push API pattern to just bring people on board a little bit more faster and make it easier. Does Plantec also offer any APIs using which we can you know, inject data into Plantec? Yeah, that's that's the push API. So on the CI CD side, um, you know, if you're using a tool, we have we have a few integrations that connect directly with some of the big name um, CI/CD tools in the market. But if you're using a smaller one, or maybe you've customized one, um, we have a push API where you can send us the data directly for every deployment with a few parameters behind that, and that feeds directly through. So that for a lot of that's teams, perfect. Very yeah. yeah, thank you. Thanks for that, Will. That was really interesting. Um, great insights there into what Plan Deck does and what's coming in the future. So thank you for joining us. If you want to say thanks. <laughs> My pleasure. Thank you. So yeah. Appreciate it. <laughs> and then thanks from Matt and Javen as well. Thanks, Will. Cheers, guys. Pleasure to speak with you again. Thanks, Will. That's all for today's episode, episode seven, Value Streams and Vulnerabilities. Thank you very much for listening. Thanks, Jobin, and thanks, Matt, for joining us. Uh, thank you to our guest interview, um, Will Lytle as well. Connect with us on the socials at Adaptivist. Uh, let us know what you think of the show. Let us know what you think of our ebook. And thank you all for listening and see you next time on DevOps Decrypted, part of the Adaptivist Live podcast network. <laughs> <laughs>